Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Thank you so much to our donors who make this podcast possible by giving at paradoxgiving.com. Today we are looking at 2 Chronicles 22 and 23, and today's episode is entitled Athalia's Power. In Israel and Judah's history, there are 43 people who sit on the throne. 42 of these monarchs were kings, but one of these monarchs was a queen. Today we are discussing 2 Chronicles 22 and 23 and the story of the only queen of Judah, Athaliah. Before we open the text, we need to look at the context. 3,000 years ago, a man named David sat on the throne of Israel. Many Jews and Christians today consider David to be Israel's greatest king. While David sat on the throne, he received a visit from the prophet Nathan. Nathan revealed that God recently spoke to him, and this is what God said to him. David shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to David, and David shall be a son to me. I will not take my steadfast love from David, as I took it from him who was before David, which is Saul. But I will confirm David in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, this is a rather stunning promise from God delivered by the prophet Nathan to David. This promise is known as the Davidic covenant. God pledges to leave a descendant of David on the throne of Israel forever. And when God says forever, the prophet Nathan implies that God means forever unconditionally. According to this promise, David's descendants don't have to act or behave a certain way in order to stay on the throne. They simply have to be and God will grant them the crown. While this pledge from God is exciting, we can also see how this promise can lead to a constant insecurity. Because as long as a descendant of David is on the throne, then it's easy to believe in God. But the minute someone outside of David's bloodline takes the crown, the entire premise of God is called into question. David then eventually dies, and his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon enslaved a massive amount of men and women for profit. This led to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, meeting a rebellion the moment that he inherited the crown. A man named Jeroboam led this rebellion against King Rehoboam. Jeroboam asked the king to be a kinder king than his father. King Rehoboam thought about Jeroboam's request for three days and then returned to Jeroboam and said, Nah, I'm going to be a worse king than my dad, and I'm going to enslave you more. Needless to say, Jeroboam's rebellion did not appreciate the remarks, I'm going to enslave you more. So Jeroboam's rebellion seceded from the union of Israel and formed a new nation with 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. This new nation established the capital city of Samaria and crowned Jeroboam as their first king. Now, because this new nation had the majority of the tribes of Israel, they also took the name Israel with them to the north. Rehoboam's kingdom, which was the Davidic line, became known as Judah. 
Of course, this secession did not come about in a peaceful manner. A bloody and terrible civil war ensued that lasted for 60 years. During that civil war, Rehoboam's son, Abijah, became the king of Judah and continued the war of his father against the northern tribe of Israel. Abijah of Judah and Jeroboam of Israel died near the same time, which led to Jeroboam's son, Nadab, succeeding his father on the throne, while Asa became king of Judah. Now, Asa ruled the southern kingdom of Judah for over 40 years, while Nadab and the northern kingdom of Israel entered into a tumultuous era. A man named Basha assassinated Jeroboam's son, Nadab. Basha ruled for 24 years before his death. This led to his son, Ella, being crowned as king, but Ella only reigned for a year before a man named Zimri assassinated him. Zimri lasted just seven days on the throne of Israel before Omri seized Zimri and lit him on fire. Omri reigned for about 12 years on the northern throne, the kingdom of Israel, before he died and his son Ahab rose to power as the new king. About that time, David's descendant, Asa, passed away, and Judah coronated his son, Jehoshaphat, as the new king of Judah in Jerusalem. Now, Jehoshaphat had a son named Jehoram, and Jehoshaphat knew that the northern king Ahab had at least three children, Athaliah, Ahaziah, and Jehoram. Now, in my imagination, Jehoshaphat looked at the civil war that had been raging for six decades and thought to himself, I'm tired of fighting. What's all of this bloodshed for? This civil war began between the house of my ancestor Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's family isn't even on the throne anymore. With some of that thought process in mind, Jehoshaphat from Judah approached King Ahab from Israel and said, You have a daughter, Athaliah, and I have a son, Jehoram. Why don't we make a marriage alliance between our rival nations and bring an end to this war? Ahab agreed. And in 2 Chronicles 18, we read about a marriage alliance between Israel and Judah. This is the first alliance between these two nations since they separated from each other under the rule of Rehoboam. Shortly after the consummation of this marriage alliance, Ahab, the king of Israel to the north, died at the hand of the Aramaeans in the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. After Ahab's death, his son Ahaziah began to reign, but Ahaziah died shortly thereafter because he fell through a guardrail on a balcony. Always remember, my friends, that building codes are important. After his death, Ahaziah's brother, Jehoram, took his place as king of Israel. While King Jehoram is on the throne of Israel, Jehoshaphat died which meant that a different king with the same name, Jehoram, began to reign on the throne of Judah. So if you feel a little overwhelmed as I'm going through all these kings, there is one point in scriptural history where there is a king Jehoram of Judah to the south and a king Jehoram of Israel to the north, and they sit on the thrones of their respective countries at the same time. 
Now we read about King Jehoram of Judah, which remember is David's descendant, becoming king in 2 Chronicles 21. We read King Jehoram had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Shephthiah. All these were the sons of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. A few verses later, we find out what Jehoram did to his six brothers. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he put all his brothers to the sword and also some of the officials of Israel. Yeesh! Now, many consider Asa and Jehoshaphat to be great kings. But as soon as Jehoshaphat dies, his son, Jehoram, murders Jehoshaphat's six other sons to have a clear and unrivaled path to power. To try and explain why someone might be so violent, the author of Chronicles explains Jehoram's behavior. He writes, Jehoram walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab, Athaliah, was his wife. Jehoram did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the author blames Jehoshaphat's marriage alliance and in turn Jehoram's wife for the unspeakable cruelty of Jehoram toward his siblings. This murder of his six brothers draws a strong rebuke from the prophet Elijah. Elijah was so incensed that he wrote a letter to King Jehoram condemning him for all of this murder. In that letter, Elijah tells Jehoram how God will punish him for these homicides. Elijah writes, The Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you yourself, Jehoram, will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out day after day because of this disease. Whew! That sounds awful. And according to the text, it was awful because Elijah's prophecy of punishment came to pass. We read, after all this, the Lord struck Jehoram in the bowels with an incurable disease. In course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease and Jehoram died in great agony. Now, I'm not a medical expert, but my brother, Scotty, is. I asked him to diagnose King Jehoram based on what the Bible says he had. My brother responded by saying, well, this sounds like a rectal prolapse. I then asked my brother to describe what a rectal prolapse was, and that, my friends, was a mistake. Not only that, but my brother, who is a doctor, then decided to send me a picture. Why? I'm not going to look at a picture of a rectal prolapse. My brother then wrapped up our conversation by saying, look, Craig, a rectal prolapse would be a terrible way to die in the ancient world. Now, after Jehoram's death, his son Ahaziah, named after his uncle that fell from the balcony, began to rule over Judah. King Ahaziah's other uncle, King Jehoram of Israel, asked for his help in fighting off an insurrection from a man named Jehu. 
So King Ahaziah of Judah rushed to King Jehoram's aid to meet Jehu in battle in Israel. But Jehu possessed speedy chariots, and both kings, Ahaziah and Jehoram, fell at the hand of Jehu in one day. Ahaziah, David's descendant, reigned for just one year on the throne of Judah and died at the age of 23. Even though Ahaziah was young, he had a son and heir apparent named Joash. Now you might assume that Joash would be crowned as the new king of Judah after his father Ahaziah was killed in battle. But there's a bit of a problem with Joash. He's just one year old when his dad dies. It's hard to step up to the throne when you can't even walk. So after Ahaziah of Judah dies, there is a vacuum of power. This power vacuum inspires Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, to pursue the crown with blunt force. We read in the Bible, when Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son Ahaziah was dead, she set about to destroy all the royal family of the house of Judah. And when the author of Chronicles says, all the house of Judah, he means all the house of Judah including her one-year-old grandson, Joash. However, Athaliah's granddaughter, Jehoshabeth, intervenes. We read, but Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away among the king's children who were about to be killed. Jehoshabeth put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Somehow, someway, Jehoshabeth managed to smuggle baby Joash out of Jerusalem despite the rage of her own grandmother. With Joash gone, Athaliah then becomes the reigning queen of Judah. This is a problem for the author of Chronicles for two reasons. The first problem is that Athaliah is a woman. And you don't have to read very far in the book of Chronicles to understand that its author views women as deeply inferior to men. The second problem that the author of Chronicles has with Athaliah is that she is the first reigning monarch of Judah to not be directly related to David. Remember, God promised David that his descendants would reign on the throne of Judah forever. Just her title, Queen Athaliah, represents a broken promise from God. Because of the intersectionality of her gender and heritage, the author of Chronicles does not recognize her time on the throne as legitimate. Now, the author does this in subtle ways. When the author of Chronicles introduces the eight kings of Judah before Athaliah, he states each of those kings' age and their year that they also began to reign. However, when Athaliah becomes queen, the author of Chronicles does not state her age or the year that she began to reign. Instead, she is treated as a disposable obstacle between the reign of Ahaziah and Joash. Despite all of these things, Athaliah reigns on the throne for six years. One day, she is sitting in her palace throne room when all of a sudden she hears outside of the walls, here is the king's son. Let him reign as the Lord promised concerning the sons of David. We read in the text, when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. 
And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance and the captains and the trumpeteers beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets and the singers with their musical instruments leading in the celebration. Now notice here how the author does not hesitate to refer to Joash, a seven-year-old boy, as the king. In the author's mind, Joash has been on the throne this whole time and God has kept God's promises. Upon seeing her grandson for the first time in six years, Athalia tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. We then read immediately the mob laid hands on her. She went into the entrance of the horse gate at the king's house and there they put her to death. So all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet after Athalia had been killed with a sword. And the story of Queen Athalia comes to a close. Now the story of Queen Athalia is a barbaric story. A grandmother attempts to murder her one-year-old grandson. A granddaughter betrays her grandmother. And a seven-year-old grandson is escorted back to Jerusalem as a prop to justify the murder of his own grandmother. This story is not light devotional reading. There's not a quick and easy lesson that can be taken from Queen Athalia's life. We can't hold her up as a hero because, you know, she attempted to murder a baby. And if you're wondering where Paradox stands on the whole murdering babies debate, allow me to put all of the rumors to rest and say once and for all, murdering babies is a sin. So what then do we do with this barbaric story of Queen Athalia? My hunch is that most of you felt a fair amount of disgust at the gruesome nature of Athalia's actions. But how many of you felt that same amount of disgust when I told you the story of her husband, Jehoram, when he secured the throne of Judah? Her husband, Jehoram, did the exact same thing that Athalia did. He murdered each and every one of his brothers to ensure unrivaled power. And when the text says that Jehoram put six brothers to the sword, it's a fair assumption to read into the text that Jehoram also put his brother's families, including all of their babies, to the sword as well. When we read the story of Queen Athalia, we must remember that Jehoram and Athalia commit the same sin. And the question we have to ask is, did we feel an equal amount of disgust and repulsion for Jehoram's violence as we did for Athalia's violence? Are we just as angry at Jehoram for his abuse of power as we are at Athalia for her abuse of power? Or do we feel that Athalia should intuitively know better or instinctively act different because of her gender. Now, because Athalia is the only queen of all of Judah's and Israel's history, her story and our reaction can teach us something about our own biases. If we hold Athalia to a higher ethical standard than all of the other male kings of Judah and Israel, then we are participating in the sin of sexism. If we feel that Athalia, 
should somehow play by different rules because of her femininity, even though she's playing in a world created by men, then we are unfairly discriminating against women. Jehoram and Athaliah commit the same sin. Therefore, Jehoram and Athaliah require the same condemnation. But the story doesn't stop there. 250 years before Athaliah became the queen of Judah, Israel was a united nation living under the rule of King Solomon. Now Solomon is considered by many to be Israel's wisest king. But what very few Christians know is that before Solomon ruled on the throne, King David had a living and older son than Solomon named Adonijah. Most of us know how monarchies work. The oldest son is crowned king after his father passes away. You may ask how I know this to be true, and it's because I once watched a documentary film called The Lion King. In The Lion King, Simba sings about how he just can't wait to be king, which is really strange because he is essentially saying that he just can't wait for his dad to die. And that song really drains the emotional potency out of the scene where Mufasa dies. Now, the Lion King tells us that the oldest son becomes king after his father's death. So when David dies, everyone assumes that the oldest son, Adonijah, will then become king. But Solomon, the younger son, wants to be king. So much so that he sends assassins to murder his brother, Adonijah. In addition, it's safe to assume that he also murdered all of Adonijah's house to ensure that no one would later rise up against him and challenge his authority. After all of Adonijah's house is killed, the younger son, Solomon, becomes king of Israel. Solomon commits the same sin as Athaliah. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that I know loads of Christians who tell me about how much they admire Solomon. They strive for his wisdom, they desire his passion for justice, and they quote what they believe to be his Proverbs from Scripture. But none of them talk about the fact that he assassinated his brother for a crown. Why is it that we are willing to overlook the sins of Solomon but not the sins of Athaliah, because they are the same sin. And if this sounds like I'm trying to gloss over the fact that Athaliah attempted to murder her grandson, may I remind you that we believe murdering babies is a sin. Throughout my life, I've heard Christians say, I want to have wisdom like Solomon. But if a Christian said, I want to have the confidence of Athaliah, most other Christians will respond in horror and say, what are you talking about? Athalia is evil. She murdered her own family. And the very sin that disqualifies Athalia from being a role model is the same sin that is conveniently forgotten when we look to Solomon as a role model. This is discrimination. This is misogyny. And this is sin. If a sin disqualifies Athalia from being a role model, then that same sin must disqualify Solomon from being a role model. Otherwise, 
we are participating in the sin of sexism. End of story. But it's not the end of the story, is it? Because Solomon was not the first king in Israel's history to murder others to secure the throne. His father, King David, rose to power while there was another king already sitting on the throne of Israel. That king's name was Saul. Shortly after Saul's death, Israel crowned Saul's oldest living son, Ishbal, as the second king of their young nation. Immediately, David declared war with Ishbal because David wanted to wear the crown. This war went on for years. Many people died attacking and defending the throne of Ishbal. As the war began to wind down and David's victory began to feel imminent, two assassins from David's tribe snuck into the royal palace and murdered King Ishbal. These two assassins returned to David and presented him with the head of Ishbal. While we assume that David would be elated to see that his enemy is dead, he instead ordered the immediate execution of his own assassins that just killed Ishbal. David did this to make a political statement about anyone who dares to kill a king because David knows that he is about to be king. Yes, it's true. David is a ruthless king. But David isn't done. Because David then arrested Saul's two remaining sons, Ishbal's two surviving brothers, people named Armoni and Mephibosheth, as well as arresting five of Saul's grandsons. David kept these seven men in prison for decades. This imprisonment came to an end in 2 Samuel 21 when a tribe from Gibeon felt that they were wronged by Saul. The Gibeonites asked David to hand over the imprisoned descendants of Saul so that they can murder them in vengeance. David agreed, and the Gibeonites took the seven descendants of Saul up to a mountain and impaled each of them one by one. Now, one thing that I failed to mention at the beginning of David's story is that David is Saul's son-in-law. And all of this violence is committed on David's in-laws by David. It's important for us to acknowledge that David murders his family members the same way that Athaliah began murdering her family members. David commits the same sin as Athaliah. Now, what's interesting to me about all of this is that I know even more loads of Christians who tell me about how much they admire David. They want courage like David. They want a close relationship with God like David. They want to compose songs like David. But no one, no one talks about all of the murder of his in-laws that David committed to consolidate power. Why are we willing to overlook the sins of David, but not the sins of Athaliah. Now, I'm not saying that we should make Athaliah a role model because remember, murdering babies is a sin. But I am saying that if a sin disqualifies Athaliah from being a role model, then that same sin must disqualify David from being a role model. Otherwise, we are participating 
in the sin of sexism. Now, some may be quick to point out that I'm discounting all of the other good things that David and Solomon did with their lives. What about the Psalms, someone might say? What about the Proverbs, another may object? What about the time that David sought forgiveness for that other murder he committed? <laughs> some may also point out the fact that we know, all that we know about Athalia is that she murdered her family for the crown. Maybe, a critic might say, if Athalia did something else with her time on the throne, then we could possibly find some level of redemption in her story. But is there any way to redeem multiple murders of your own family in exchange for a crown? I don't think there is. No matter how much good these three monarchs did while they reigned over Israel and Judah, it seems nearly impossible to make me feel like it's okay to murder your family for power. You may think I'm crazy for believing that it's impossible to redeem these murders, but I'm not alone in this belief. The author of Chronicles believes the same thing as me. This author's central purpose for writing 1st and 2nd Chronicles is to establish the centrality and importance of the temple in their religion. Because the temple is the author's agenda when writing these books, he wants the reader to know that the two builders of the temple, David and Solomon, are the most moral and upstanding people in Israel's history. Which is a bit of a problem. Because, you know, they murdered babies for a crown. So how does the author of Chronicles present David and Solomon as exemplars of morality when they have a plethora of blood on their hands? Well, allow me to show you how the author of Chronicles does this. Historically, David and Solomon ruled over Israel sometime between the 10th and 9th century BCE. 400 years later, a historian writes the history of the kings in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. These four books contain the stories of David's cruelty toward his in-laws and the story of Solomon murdering his brother Adonijah as well as Adonijah's family. 200 years after 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings are written down, or 600 years after David and Solomon lived, the author of Chronicles writes Chronicles with an agenda of making the temple great again. This agenda shapes the historical narrative of Chronicles. And this reshaping of the story leads Chronicles further away from historical fact and closer toward religious propaganda. So to tell the world about the sterling reputation of the temple the author tells the historical narrative completely different than the history of his day and removes any conflict from David's ascendancy to the throne. We read after the death of Saul in Chronicles in chapter 11, Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Wait a second. Where is Ishbal? Wasn't there a civil war for David to become king? And the author of Chronicles just expects us that all of Israel peacefully came together after Saul's death 
And they all said, yeah, let's not crown Saul's son Ishbal king. Let's crown this other guy king so that we can all live together in perfect harmony. What about the story where David locks up Saul's sons and grandsons and offers them as a sacrifice to Gibeonites? None of those stories, the civil war, Ishbal's crown, the assassins, the Gibeonites, none of those stories are in Chronicles. The reason they're not in Chronicles is because the author of Chronicles knows that those historical moments call into question David's character, which is why the author completely, completely omits Ishbal, Armoni, Mephibosheth, the five grandsons, and all of the murder and civil war from the narrative. Solomon's rise to power follows a similar pattern in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In Solomon's rise to power, according to this author, there is no older brother Adonijah. (laughs) Instead, David, while he is still alive, lets all of Israel know through a royal proclamation that his younger son Solomon is supposed to be his heir. In fact, in Chronicles, David actually crowns his son king so that there's no dispute. If that wasn't enough, <laughs> David does it again with a royal proclamation in 1 Chronicles that Solomon is to succeed him as king. And for a second time, David places the crown on Solomon's head. We read, quote, they made David's son Solomon king a second time, close quote. Really? (laughs) You make someone a king a second time? There is something telling in the way that the history of David and Samuel changes in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. What it reveals is that the author of Chronicles knows that the murders committed by David and Solomon to gain the crown are irredeemable. So the author omits them. He omits them so that his readers can believe that David and Solomon, the visionaries, founders, and builders of the temple, can be held up as heroes of the faith. But the author of Chronicles still wants his readers to believe that Athaliah is a villain. So the author of Chronicles makes sure to include the very sin he is willing to omit for David and Solomon, all in an effort to make his readers believe that Athaliah is beyond redemption. Chronicles discriminates against Athaliah by holding her accountable for the same sin that is committed by men, but is deliberately forgotten to protect men's reputation. We must be aware of this whenever we read the book of Kings and Chronicles. Today, when we hold up David and Solomon as heroes of the faith, while also condemning Athaliah for the same behavior, we are participating in the sin of sexism. And this very sin of sexism was committed by the author of Chronicles in the way that he omitted things from history to protect men and included those same sins to condemn a woman. That sin is contained in the Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong with that sin being contained in Scripture 
as long as we are willing to admit that there is that sin in Scripture. The acceptance of sins within Scripture is difficult for some of us because of our definition of what the Bible is. Many people of faith believe that the Bible is a moral code hand-delivered to us by God. But after dedicating my life to the study of these scriptures, I can testify that that definition doesn't work. The discrimination against Queen Athalia is one of the many examples I would cite to point out the problems of holding up the Bible as a moral authority. Personally, I found that the Bible is much more helpful when we hold it as a spiritual mirror. When we use the Bible as a spiritual mirror, we can then encounter a sin within Scripture, you know, like the sin that we're talking about in Chronicles, and the Bible gives us an opportunity to see how that sin is in ourselves and what we can do to change to overcome and fight against those sins. In a world filled with finger-pointing, blaming, and longing to prove that other people are the problem, the Bible dares us to look inward and ask ourselves a daunting question. How am I part of the problem? And when I read the story of Queen Athalia and discover the sin of the author of Chronicles, the Bible asks me the question, Craig, how have you been complicit in the sin of sexism? Craig, what do you need to change to bring about gender equality? Craig, don't look down your nose at the author of Chronicles and think, well, good thing that doesn't happen to me. I'm one of the good guys. No, hold up a mirror and ask yourself, how am I part of the problem? And when it comes to the story of Queen Athalia, the only queen out of 43 monarchs in Israel and Judah's history, it's safe to assume that this story can teach us about how we personally view women, particularly women who are in power. This is why I wanted to talk to you about this story today. This past Tuesday, for the first time in American history, we elected a woman to serve as Vice President of the United States. Now, no matter what your politics are, we need to appreciate the importance of this moment in our society. Our second Vice President, Thomas Jefferson, enslaved 600 men and women of African descent during his lifetime. One of those women, Sally Hemings, he kept as a sex slave. Jefferson most likely began sleeping with Sally Hemings when he was 44 and she was 14. Sally Hemings gave birth to at least four of Jefferson's children during her lifetime. And here we are in January of 2021 soon, when a black woman whom Jefferson would have sought to enslave during Jefferson's lifetime will now sit in the same seat of power where Jefferson once ruled. If you consider yourself to be even a mild enthusiast of American history, it is impossible for partisan politics to rob you and to rob me 
of the beauty of this moment and the movement from Sally Hemings to Vice President Kamala Harris. Now, because this is the first time in our nation's 244-year history that we are willing to trust a woman with this kind of power, it means that none of us here in America know how to act in the way we talk about and respond to her actions as vice president. We've never done this before. Now, what's important for us all to remember is that with great power comes great criticism. You cannot open yourselves to be a source of hope without opening yourself simultaneously to be a source of criticism. And all of that criticism is necessary and important because it keeps power in check. However, the story of Athalia teaches us about how we naturally respond to women in power. This story teaches us that when Vice President Harris does something that you or I deem to be irresponsible or immoral, all of us, all of us, myself included, must pause before we open our mouths and criticize her and ask ourselves a reflective spiritual question. That question is this. Have I been critical of a man for doing the same thing? If the answer is no, then we end up repeating the sin of Chronicles and the sin of sexism rolls on. If the answer is yes, we need to ask ourselves whether we're being more critical of Kamala Harris or not, and whether or not it's actually fair to criticize her for these things when men have done the same thing. Now, if you and I are serious about personal growth and experiencing transformation from our relationship with Jesus Christ, we'll take this question even one step further. We'll ask ourselves, have I been critical of a man from the political party that I generally agree with for doing the same thing that Kamala Harris just did? Because if we have not, then we are about to repeat the sin of Chronicles and the sin of sexism continues to thrive. But the story of Queen Athalia is much bigger than how we view just one woman in power. We live in a world that was primarily built by men for men at the expense of oppressing women. Therefore, in today's society of the patriarchy, the story of Queen Athalia should give all of us pause whenever we are about to criticize another woman. Whether this woman is our boss, our classmate, our teacher, our student, our friend, or our daughter, we must always pause and ask ourselves if we have been willing to overlook the same sin in a man. Because to overlook that transgression from a man while criticizing that same transgression from a woman is to repeat the sin of Chronicles again and to allow the sin of sexism to thrive. To my brothers, my sisters, and my friends, the work of gender equality is the work of God. May we cease to repeat the sin of Chronicles. May we work against the sin of sexism. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, particularly in the feminine experience.